David now has been enthroned over all of Israel. And on top of that, he has uh, conquered the city of Jerusalem and made it his capital. And so we pick up here in verse 13. And it says, And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron, and more sons and daughters were born to David. And these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem. Shemua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Eshua, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishima, Eliada, and Eliphelet. Now, aside from noticing there that, uh, that David is um, adding to his multiple wives, um, also concubines, um, something we consistently see with royalty in the Bible, and something that's already starting to foreshadow um, the great sin in David's life uh, with Bathsheba. But also notice we're given a list of his sons here. Now, probably not too many of those are familiar to you. If you read the New Testament genealogies of Jesus, you will discover that one of them comes through David from the line of Solomon and the other through David uh, from the line of Nathan. Um, moving on though, verse 17. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David, but David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. Okay, so understand the Philistines' action here. Um, they have been kind of semi-coexisting in, in a manifold set of ways with the people of Israel, sometimes raiding into places in Israel, sometimes inhabiting part of Israel's land, uh, etc. But now, after, after years and years of a divided Israel and Judah, they're all united under over one, or excuse me, under one king here, the Philistines recognize that that unity uh, is an endangerment, and so they take immediate action. They try and deal with David as quickly as possible. Verse 18, the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim, and David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. And David came to Baal Perazim, and David defeated them there, and said, The Lord had burst through my enemies before like a bursting flood. Now, one of the things that you'll notice if you read, especially the Old Testament, is that uh, the characters in the Old Testament are quite happy making puns. And that's what David does here. He marks this, uh, he marks this victory with a statement, which is basically a pun based on the name. Notice it's Baal Perizim. Now, Perez, you may even remember from the book of Genesis, uh, for one of the sons uh, that is born to Judah. And Judah has twin boys, and Perez is the one who at the last minute is born first, surprisingly, and makes a breach in the birth order. Uh, you know, he's, he uh, wins by a nose, if you will, um, in being the firstborn. And so the idea here is a similar one, a breach, a breakthrough. And so he takes the name of Baal Perez and he says, The Lord has burst through my enemies before me like a bursting flood. Therefore, the name of this place is called Baal Perizim. 
And the Philistines left their idols there, and David and his men carried them away. Now, see that for what it is. It's not, uh, it's not a statement of booty, as if Israel has just, you know, um, benefited from these leftover idols, nor is it sanitary, as if they're just cleaning up after them. The significance here is that the Philistines forsake their gods because their gods have forsaken them. Okay? The significance is they thought their gods were supporting them militaristically, and in this defeat, they recognize them for what they are, defeated. Okay? And so they leave them behind. Notice we see a second battle with the Philistines. Verse 22, the Philistines came up yet again and spread out in the valley of Rephim. And when David inquired of the Lord, he said, you'll not go up. Go around to the rear and come against them opposite the balsam trees. And so here he inquires of the Lord again, and he's given a different tactic. Instead of coming from the front, as he did this time, he says, I want you to sneak around their armies and come up from the backside where the balsam trees are, verse 24. And when you hear the sound of marching in the top of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself, for then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. Now, it's hard for us to tell reading this exactly what this prompt means, but there's some things we can be really clear about, okay? Basically, God tells David, station yourself, station yourself where the balsam trees are, and there will be some sort of an audible cue so that you'll know that it's time to attack. The second thing I want you to notice is uh, the cue will tell him, look at halfway through verse 24, because then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. So it's not just the starting gun. It's actually significantly pointing to the fact that God is moving before them. It may be here that the sound of marching in the trees is a heavy wind, like storm-level winds. In fact, we've seen consistently in the battles of Israel where God shows up in storms and proves his presence. Um, but either way... The most important thing here is that God tells Israel to do this under David. David does it in verse 25. David did as the Lord commanded him and struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezer. Okay. That final statement sums up the fact that the Philistines have completely been pushed out of the land at this point. Okay. Now, the reason that's important is because chapter 6 can't happen without the battles we've just observed. In chapter 6, David is going to bring the ark to Jerusalem, but remember where it's been left. It's all the way down in Kiriath-Jerim, uh, which here is referred to in chapter 6 as Baal Judah. Uh, but the thing I want to point out about this city is that it is a border city with the land of the Philistines. Okay, You remember all the way back in the time uh, of, of Samuel's young age, under Eli the priest, uh, and especially his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, the ark is carried out and it's conquered, and Shiloh, where it was living, is destroyed, and the Philistines inherit the ark, and it gets passed around from city to city while God brings a plague on the Philistines. So they load it on a cart and they send it back to Israel. This is the border town where the ark pulls in and they just... Uh, sacrifice the oxen right there, and it's been there the entire duration of Samuel, uh, Samuel's adult ministry, Saul's rulership, and now David's life, okay? So it's all the way down by the land of the Philistines, much, uh, much uh, a great distance away from 
David's new capital in Jerusalem. But by cleaning out the area from, uh, from here it says, from Geba to Gezer, it also makes it possible to safely bring the ark forward to Jerusalem, to bring it away from the border town. Now, chapter 6, verse 1, David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000, and David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Bala Judah to bring up the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. Okay, and so notice here the significance of the ark is that it's the ark who belongs to the one who sits enthroned on the cherubim. This is the most significant piece of Israel's worship, the centerpiece of their worship. And so David wants it to be in his newfound capital of Jerusalem. If you go all the way back to the laws of Israel given in Deuteronomy before they enter the land, there's one caveat that's held up uh, over and over again throughout the law is when the ark exists, when the tabernacle exists, when God's house exists in the city which he will choose, then, and that's where all of the pilgrimage laws come in, that's where um, all of the Levitical layout throughout Israel comes in, and so now we're finally seeing it move forward towards its permanent home, the place that God has chosen, Jerusalem, Mount Zion, etc., now notice verse 3, they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on a hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart. Okay, so notice a few things here. First, the people handling the ark are priests. That's good. Okay. In fact, it's the same family here that's been watching over the ark for all of this time. Um, second, notice they put it here on a cart, and it specifically tells us a new cart, meaning it was built just for the occasion. It's never been used for anything else. However, however, Leviticus and Exodus make clear that the ark was to be carried by the priests themselves. Okay? In fact, the ark is designed with large rings on its side and acacia poles that slide through it that point to the fact that it's supposed to be carried. If we wanted a precedent for why you would put the ark on a cart, we would have to look to how the Philistines deal with the cart. It's not a terribly good example. Okay? And so we can see here some respect for the ark, but they've disconnected with the rules and the requirements laid out in the law. And so, verse 4, um, they're walking along and with the ark of God and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were making merry before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. Uh, and so here, notice it's quite the procession. It's not just the ark uh, and the priests, but as we already saw, all of the soldiers of Israel gathered. So it's a military parade. And then there's a large musical accompaniment and a great celebration because the ark is coming to Jerusalem. Verse 6, when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. Okay, and so notice what happens here. The road gets a little bit rough. One of the oxen trips, and it topples. It totters the cart. And so Uzzah just reaches out his hand, walking next to it, to steady the ark so that it doesn't fall and touch the ground. Uh, verse 7, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, 
And God struck him down there because of his error, and he, he died beside the ark of God. And so because Uzzah touches the ark here, God instantly strikes him dead. Now, we have a precedent for this. This is really similar to what happened in its borderland hometown. Remember what happens there? They celebrate, they sacrifice the oxen, and then the people of the town can't resist themselves, and they open the ark to see inside of it, and there's this great outbreak against them, and many die. Okay. But notice, notice the mistake that Uzzah makes here, and I want to point out here that it's probably functioning at the instinct level. This is not necessarily a conscious decision Uzzah makes. This is in the moment just a, an instinct of response, but we can still analyze that response. What he doesn't want to happen is for the ark to fall over and touch the ground. And so instead, he reaches out and he touches the ark. And the significance that he forgets here is that the holiness of God, right here, right at this moment, comes in full contact with a sinful man, a priest, but a sinful man named Uzzah. And so here we realize that although there's much joy in David's moving of the ark, there's a lack of reverence. There's a lack of appropriate fear. And so Uzzah is struck dead. And look at uh, what happens here. Verse 8, David was angry because the Lord had burst forth against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah. Perez again, remember, to lash out, to breach through Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, how can the uh, ark of the Lord come to me? And so he responds by suddenly understanding the significance of what the ark is. Not just the presence of God, but the holy presence of God. And so, verse 10, David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but he took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. Now, Obed-Edom here is a character who will recur. It refers to him here as a Gittite, and it, sometimes Gittite is a statement of origin, of ethnicity, which would make him a foreigner of Israel, but we know that's not the case. In fact, 1 Chronicles tells us that he's a Levite. Okay? Gittite is his area, not his uh, ethnicity. He's from this place. Um, but it comes into his house. He's now living um, just 10 miles away from Jerusalem. And it says here, uh, the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all of his household. Now, when we read something like that, what does that exactly mean? What does it mean that because the ark was residing in Obed-Edom's house that he was blessed? Okay. When we read First Chronicles, and just a note here, First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings... And then 1st and 2nd Chronicles are somewhat parallel. They tell the same story from two different perspectives. Um, it's kind of like the Gospels in the New Testament. And so we have Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic, synoptic Gospels, and then we have the Gospel of John. They all tell relatively the same story from relatively the same period of time, but they do it from different perspectives written to different audiences for different purposes. And so here, Samuel and Kings collectively, that operates as a historic uh, document that kind of walks us through the history. First and Second Chronicles is like an editorial. It gives us not just the history, but a perspective of it. In fact, it gives us a priestly perspective, and so it tends to focus on the big picture of what God's doing. It is very interesting 
to read the parallel passages. And I'll just give you one piece of homework. We're going to look at 1 Samuel 7, the Davidic covenant tonight. If you read it and then open up and read the Chronicles version, recognizing that the chronicler is looking back on this event and has something to say, uh, it becomes tremendously significant in terms of messianic prophecy. Okay, because he's drawing out not just the things that will be fulfilled by Solomon, which we'll see here, but the significant things that look beyond Solomon to the son of David, the one we find in the Gospels by that name, to Jesus. Um, but with all that being said, we do learn a little bit more about Obed-Edom in 1 Chronicles, which is worth referencing. And so if you turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 26. All right, well, I'm just going to have to spoil the punchline and find the reference later, but here's the point. Tells us from the chronicler's perspective that Obed-Edom during this period has a whole bunch of children. Okay, the, the, the blessing is specifically sons. Okay, did you find the reference? Verse 6, okay, take a glance while you're there, chapter 26, verse 6, okay. And that makes sense, because that is part of the covenantal blessing that is promised to Israel as a nation, that if they keep the covenant of their Lord, their God, then they will bear many children. They will be blessed abundantly. I'm pointing that out for a specific reason, okay? And here's what it is. It's because that blessing continues to be on focus as we move forward in the chapter. But it also does something else. It creates an object lesson for David. So yes, he sees that, that the God of Israel is holy. He's reminded of the fact that God should be feared. But also, he recognizes the blessing. Verse 12, it was told to King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. Okay. And so three months of activity here, um, beginning with the blessing of sons, David witnesses this and he goes, okay, this is a worthwhile endeavor. He wants to bring the ark into Jerusalem. And so he does it, it says there, with rejoicing. And then verse 13, when those who bore the ark of the Lord, do you see the difference there? How is the ark being carried this time? Not by a cart and oxen, but by the priests, those who bore the ark of the Lord. And every time they had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. Now, get the picture here. This is six steps of 10 miles, okay? Now, if that seems like a ridiculous amount of sacrifice, just wait till we get to Solomon and the first temple, the day that, uh, that he prays over it, it's even bigger than this number. But I want you to recognize what this says about David uh, and what he's doing here, okay? He recognizes that every step these priests take because they carry the ark is effectively holy ground. And so he sacrifices along the way, not just with their mouths in praise, but at great expense to his own um, you know, livestock, sacrificing animals. And on top of that, verse 14, David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. Now, a lot of times when we read the word ephod, we think of the priesthood. And it is worth mentioning here, and I'll come back to this, I promise you, that there may be a priestly significance to this idea, but most likely we should just read it undergarment. 
okay? Uh, when we look at how generally people in the Middle East have dressed throughout history, there's your robe, this overcloak, and then there's your undergarments. The idea here is that David is just in those, okay? And so he's dressed very humbly. And so verse 15, David and all the house of Israel brought the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. And the horn there is the shofar. Um, as, verse 16, the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. Okay, so get the picture here. Now, we don't know why Michal is at home and not on this journey, because as we just saw, there's men and women on the trip, but she stayed home. Okay. That's not necessarily a criticism, but she hears the arrival in the city and looks out the window and she sees David dancing with, as it said earlier, all his might and only wearing a linen ephod and it says that she despised him in her heart. Now I want you to notice the narrator's comment on this that's already built into this. How is she identified? Michal, the daughter of Saul. Not Michal, the wife of David. Both of those would be appropriate, but twice in the story here it refers to her as the daughter of Saul, and I think that's significant. We'll come back to her. Verse 17, they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it, and David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. When David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord's of hosts. And so here, again, we find this idea of blessing. And notice here that David shares the blessing. He speaks it over the people. In fact, significantly, we find that this is something that the priesthood uh, consistently does with the sacrifices of Israel. And so we have the Aaronic blessing, uh, not ironic blessing, the Aaronic blessing, the blessing of Aaron, uh, the Lord bless you and keep you, which was for the priest to speak over the people. And here he does that. And not only does he that, do that, verse 19, he distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread and a portion of meat and a cake of raisins to each one. And so he shares from his own pantry uh, generously with all of those who are in attendance. Okay. Then all the people departed, each one to his own house. Now, the reason why, um, why I'm focusing in here on David's behavior as being somewhat priestly is because of this character all the way back in Genesis 14 known as Melchizedek. Okay. Now, you may remember the story in Genesis 14. Uh, Abraham has just, by God's help, had a tremendous victory over these five kings uh, that had stood against Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities and captured a bunch of people, including Abraham's nephew Lot. And so Abraham takes 314 of his servants and goes after Lot, and he, he has this tremendous victory. And so he has not just Lot back and all of Lot's possession, but all of Sodom's possessions, which is probably no small amount of stuff. And so right before uh, the king of Sodom shows up to talk to him about these things, out of nowhere, the king uh, of Salem, Melchizedek, uh, shows up, and he blesses Abraham, and he says, blessed be Abraham by the God most high, and he brings out food and wine, and he eats with Abraham, and it's, it's this weird little happening uh, that would be almost just a blip on the radar if it weren't for Psalm 110, 
Psalm 110 is a messianic psalm. In fact, it's the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. And it says that the Messiah is a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, as the author of Hebrews will point out, that's significant for a lot of reasons because Jesus, as our great high priest, comes from the wrong tribe of Israel, right? Jesus is from the tribe of Judah. Remember, he's a descendant of David. So how can he function as a high priest? And the author of Hebrews shows in chapters 5, 6, and 7 uh, that before the Levites were Levitical, when they were only, you know, what do we say, a twinkling in the eye of Grandpa Abraham, right? Abraham paid a tithe, a tenth of everything he has. He received the blessings from the priesthood of Melchizedek, okay? Now, when we read that, that Melchizedek was the king of Salem, it's possible here that that brings us back to the city that Jebusites conquered, which becomes Jerusalem, okay? So here's the suggestion that some people make, and I find it to be at least, at least a little bit compelling. It may be here that David by his ownership of Jerusalem, has inherited a priesthood, okay? Now, there's a lot of other ways to connect the dots between Melchizedek and Jesus, but it is interesting here, the parallels, because Melchizedek comes to Abraham, and he gives them a blessing, and we see the same thing here. Melchizedek comes to Abraham, and he brings out wine and food, and we see the same thing with David here. Melchizedek comes being both a king and a priest, and that's how this story is told, as if David is functioning in this way. In fact, according to 2 Samuel, as we'll see in just a little bit, David appoints his sons as priests. Now, the Chronicles account tells us that that's not priests as we think of it, but something different, and we'll get to that. But it may be that there is a significance to the place that David plays, which is unique because of this Melchizedek character. Okay? But what's more important for us is however you get from Melchizedek to David, Psalm 110 points forward and points to the coming priest, the descendant of David, who's both priest and king, who is going to bring about the new covenant. Okay? Now, that's not the only psalm we need to talk about here. When David brings the ark to Jerusalem, we also should read Psalm 132. So go ahead and turn there. Let's read it together. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I'll not enter into my house or get into my bed. I'll not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Now, we don't really get this perspective in Samuel, but here what the psalmist is pointing to, David personally takes a vow that he's going to find a home for the ark, OK? 
Okay? And it says here that he's going to put that before his own house. Now, we were told in chapter 5 uh, that with the help of Hiram, David was building a palace. So maybe it's before this palace is finished, I want to bring the ark in. Maybe it's before all of that happens and actually he conquers Jerusalem, not just to set up his capital, but to bring, uh, to bring the ark into Israel. Either way, uh, we see here that, uh, that David has intentions. Verse 6, Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Jair. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool, which is a reference to the ark. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness. Let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on the throne. This is the oath that God's going to make David in just a second in chapter 7. Okay? And so David swears an oath. I'm going to make a house for the Lord. I'm going to set a, find a place, and it ends up being Jerusalem. But David, uh, God swears to him an oath that one of the sons of his body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant, verse 12, and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation. Her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame but on his crown I will shine. And so here we see that, that David's carrying forth of the ark is to fulfill the expectation that goes all the way back to Moses, that God is going to choose a place in which the tabernacle will set up, and the place that he chooses is Zion, is Jerusalem. Back to verse 20 of chapter 6. Okay, remember how blessing has flown through this? Obed-Eben, Obed-Edom. His house is blessed because of the ark. He brings the ark into Jerusalem. He blesses the people. And now he comes into his household. Okay. And David returned to bless his household. But Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David. And she said, notice again, she's called the daughter of Saul, not the wife of David. How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. Okay. Now, we already saw that she despised David, and now we find out why. She says, how unbecoming of a king to prance about in front of all of your servants in such an undignified manner. And so David responds in verse 21. David said to Michal, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. I will make merry before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this. I will be abased in your eyes, but by female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And so he basically says, God has 
gifted me and blessed me and taken care of me and raised me up out of nothing in such a way, I will be much more humbled than this, much more humiliated, much more undignified in my praise to him. And then he says, also, everyone else gets it but you. Those female servants that you think, they're not looking at me in the same way, like some sort, you know, um, some sort of embarrassment. They recognize that this is true worship and it's worthy of recognizing. And then notice this in verse 23, and Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no child till the day of her death. Okay. Now that could just be a comment on their marital relationship, right? It could be that's just the end of them having sexual relations as a married couple. Or it could be that uh, with, with the help of God, she doesn't bear another child. Okay? But I think the thing that's most interesting here is Michal is really behaving like the daughter of Saul. She's not interested in the Lord's opinion of David. She's interested in the people's opinion of David. Right? And because of that, she's cut off from the blessing of the presence of the ark in Jerusalem. Obed-Edom's house is filled with children and her womb remains empty until the day she dies. She severs herself off from the covenant. Now, we don't know a lot about her personal faith, but we do have reasons besides this one to find it questionable. Remember what she did uh, to hide David's escape? She had a effigy, a a human-sized doll, effectively, that she hid in the bed. The only reason people have those, okay, is not you know, like pillows like we do today, uh, is, is for idolatrous worship, okay? And so we don't really have any reason to believe she has a very strong relationship with the Lord, but here we see significantly that she doesn't get it. And in doing so, she cuts herself off from the blessing that is literally visible out her window. We always need to recognize the difference between in relationship with the Lord and in proximity to the Lord. Michal lived out the rest of her days in proximity to the Lord and did not know the Lord. Chapter 7, verse 1. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all the surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, now pause, this is the first introduction we have to Nathan. Okay, uh, Nathan just suddenly shows up here. Now we have a heritage here, because we started the book with Samuel, and then we found a prophet who was traveling with David by the name of Gad, and now we have Nathan. And when we get to Chronicles, we find out that some of the historical reports we have that make up our Old Testament are written by Samuel, Gad, and Nathan. Okay, so there's a heritage there. He'll become very significant next week as the story continues, and I think it's pretty hard to remove the possibility. I've yet to sit down and map out the timeline but it seems very likely that David's son Nathan is named for the prophet Nathan. I could be wrong. Maybe Nathan comes before that. Uh, but there, does, there is that overlap there. Um, but either way, we see him here. He is in the king's court operating as a prophet. And David speaks to him and he says, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark dwells in a tent. And do you see what his point is here? He's like, how can it be that I am living large and God's still living in a tent? How can it be that I have this beautiful and permanent house and it's not the same for the Lord? Now, his intentions here are right, okay? He wants God to have the best portion. 
In fact, that's one of the things that's significant about the difference between David and Solomon. Both of them acquire tremendous wealth. David gives it all to the Lord. Solomon just acquires it for himself. He's oriented in this way. He's really bothered by this. And so Nathan responds off the cuff and says to the king, go do all that's in your heart for the Lord is with you. Nathan's on board. He says, that's a great idea, David. In fact, it comes from the right place. But Nathan has stepped out of line here, hasn't he? Because Nathan's opinion doesn't count. It doesn't matter. That's not what Nathan exists for. This isn't Nathan the advisor to the king. This is Nathan the mouthpiece of God, Nathan the prophet. And so verse 4, that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all the places where I moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? He says, David, I've been with your people for generations. Before there was a nation Israel, there was the tabernacle built by my specs, communicated to Moses. And he says, is there ever been a time in history where I went, come on, Israel, when are you going to do the right thing and give me a home? Verse 8. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name like the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place. Okay? David says, I want a place for your name, and God says, I'm going to give you a name. David says, I want to make you a dwelling place, and he says, I'm going to give Israel a dwelling place. And then notice here, uh, it says halfway through 10, violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. I'm going to give you rest. Verse 11, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you, you singular there, you David, that the Lord will make you a house. He says, no, 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 David, you've got it backwards. You want to build me a house, but I'm going to make you a house. And he's using this image here. David already has a palace. God isn't going to, you know, send him a new one. He's speaking here of a dynasty, okay? Not a house, but a household, okay? He's speaking of a dynasty, and he says, I'm going to make you a house. And then notice verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And so he says, okay, your son who comes from you, I'm going to establish his throne, and he will build me a house. Verse 14, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, who I put away before you. Okay, and so we call this the Davidic covenant. And so notice what he says here. He says, I am going to make a commitment to your sons and I will discipline them. When they step out of line, I will bring discipline, 
but I will not set them aside as I did with Saul. Okay. Verse 16, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Now, I want you to notice two things here. It starts actually really negative about the whole idea, doesn't it? God says, what would I want with a house? Okay. But we need to recognize here that God is making a clarification. Okay. He, he doesn't seem to have a problem with the house. In fact, he says, your son's actually going to build me one. Right? In the temple of Solomon and even, uh, even the temple in the days of, uh, of Jesus uh, is a significant place where God operates, where he brings his presence. On the day of the dedication, just like the tabernacle, it's filled with smoke and the priest can't even enter in because God is so present in this thing. Um, but he wants to make clear here that God doesn't need anything from David. In fact, here it's not David the promise maker it's God, the promise maker. And so he just, he just loads on more promises. He says, here's the things that I'm going to do for you. Uh, and what he require, or what he speaks to here is, is a continuous kingdom with a descendant of David sitting on the throne forever. Now, this becomes a prophetical sticky wicket, right? Because eventually... Although God is going to continue, the ten tribes of Israel are going to split off, and then they're going to go in judgment, and in, in that side, the kings are going to roll over, they're going to come from all over the place, there's going to be political intrigue and all of these things, but on the Davidic line in Jerusalem, ruling over Judah, we find a continuity, okay? It just keeps going, but nonetheless, at the end, it's sacked just like Israel was, and it's not taken by Assyria, but by Babylon, and they're reset there. And so by the time we get to the story of Jesus, a Davidic king hasn't been on the throne for many, many generations, for hundreds and hundreds of years. Okay. It's fascinating when you read the prophets around the exile, both in it, uh, before it, and after it, how often they reference this idea of the promises laid out here. And they start to talk about the, uh, the branch that's going to come out of the stump of Jesse, a restoration of the house of David. They're looking forward to this time. Uh, there's also those who would point out that Daniel straddles the entire 70-year period, and Daniel is of the tribe of Judah. And so at least the promises all the way back in Genesis 49 stand Judah shall reign over Israel until Shiloh comes, until the one whose right the rule is comes. The scepter is going to be Judah's until he comes. Um, like I said, if you read the chronicler's version of this, it's a little bit different. Here it mentions discipline. There that's not mentioned. Okay? And so there's a sense here where Solomon is a stand-in for the rehearsal of the full, full fulfillment of this. Yes, Solomon builds a house for the Lord. But remember what Jesus says as he walks around the third temple? He says, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. I'll build it again. Jesus also built a temple. In fact, it's this role of the son of David and the messianic expectation that comes from 1 Samuel uh, that flows through all of Jesus' ministry. How can he both be the son of David and David's Lord? 
according to the Psalms. He asks that question. He talks about when a throne is set up and the Son of Man sits on it, and then he explains what's going to happen. He constantly points back to this covenant in an explanation of himself. Even though Jesus was never in need of discipline because he never strayed, he always did the things that pleased the Father, the author of Hebrews reminds us that he learned obedience by the things that he suffered. In fact, he, uh, Isaiah says, was scourged and by his stripes we are healed. It's all here. It's all laid out here. It's all present here. And to be honest, it's more than David can even wrap his head around. Right? How did his morning begin? Yesterday he's like, I really want to do something for the Lord. And God effectively gives him a yes but. Right? Sure, you can do that, but here's what I'm going to do for you. And he lays out all of these things. What comes next is the longest monologue of David, except for the psalmic monologue at the end, which is just slightly longer. But one of the largest portions of David's words are in response to what we just read that's conveyed by Nathan. In fact, if I, if I paid attention to my reading right, it's literally only one Hebrew word shorter than God's word here. It couldn't be any closer of an equal response. David is overwhelmed. Verse 18 King David went in and sat before the Lord. Okay, so get the picture here. He goes into the tabernacle as far as he can go, not being a priest. And he just sits in front of the ark. In fact, this is the only place in all of Scripture where we find somebody seated and praying. To the degree that the rabbis actually said that was a prerogative of the king, to sit in the temple courts. No one else could do it because it's such a strange posture. But obviously, it's, it's one here of him being present. We don't get the idea here that, you know, uh, like I often do, he prays this prayer as he's laying in bed, right? He, he doesn't even stay at home and pray this prayer. He goes and he sits and he spends time at the ark. Consider what he says in the Psalms where he says, One day in your courts, Lord, is better than a thousand elsewhere. How, how much I longed when I couldn't go to the tabernacle. How much I longed to go. This is the place where David wants to be because this is where the Lord dwells. And so he speaks and he says, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you've brought me thus far? Notice he hasn't even gotten the promises yet. He says, I don't deserve anything you've done for me to get me here. Verse 19, And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You've spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is the instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know, that you know your servant, O Lord God, because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God beside you according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on the earth whom God went to redeem, to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people, whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house and do as you have spoken." One of the things that really strikes me about this passage is basically David says, I'm going to make you a promise, O Lord. And God says, no, 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 I have promises for you 
And David doesn't up the ante. He doesn't come up with a whole bunch of other things he's going to do for God. In fact, the rest of his prayer here focuses on, and he says, so be it, God. Do the things that you've promised. And I think I heard John Corson, a pastor in Oregon, once say uh, that we have to watch out uh, for being promise keepers before God. Instead, we need to be promise takers. We need to take God at his word. And so David here is an act of worship. Not only does he proclaim the goodness and graciousness of God throughout all of Israel's history, but he basically says amen. He says, so be it, Lord. Accomplish what you've said you will accomplish. Confirm your word to your servant. And so he continues here, uh, verse 26. If you do this, your name will be magnified forever, saying, the Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray and to prayer this to you. In other words, what he says is, I'm saying confirm this. I'm asking you to do this because this is what you told me you would do. And the only reason I have confidence to ask you to do it is because of your word. And so verse 29, now therefore may it please you to bless. There's the final occurrence of this idea, right? David has been rightly chasing a blessing. He wanted the ark to be where he was because the ark brought a blessing. And here he sees that that blessing is more than he could have imagined. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. This is the backbone of 1 and 2 Samuel. It's the centerpiece. In fact, you could argue significantly that this is the backbone of Israel's history. But another way to see this is that it is, um, it is one of the final narrowings of God's ongoing promise. In fact, this passage is very comparable to Genesis 12. God comes to Abraham and he says, Abraham, I'm going to make you a name. He says, Abraham, I'm going to give you descendants. And those people, Israel, end up becoming the son of God, right? All of these elements are the same. And so if we go back even further, we go to Genesis chapter 3, and when uh, Eve is judged, God says, I'm going to fix this through the seed of the woman. It'll be a descendant, a human being, who I'm going to set these things right. And then we follow the trajectory, we follow the genealogy, and it gets to Abraham, and he, he chooses one family. He says, Abraham, it'll be one of your children. From you the seed will be called. Read the book of Galatians. And then Abraham has Isaac. And Isaac is chosen instead of Ishmael. And then Isaac has Jacob and Esau. And Jacob is chosen instead of Esau. And then Jacob has 12 sons. And over the course of their life, Genesis 49 says, the one that you're expecting is going to come from Judah. And then this pool has just been moving forward for hundreds of years until here. And it's from the tribe of Judah, but from the line of David. Right? It's a zeroing in here. We're getting closer to the fulfillment. Um, In fact... You can trace this, and it moves forward through this Davidic line, and all we have left is not another narrowing, but a detour, because eventually we're going to get to a king, one of David's descendants, whose behavior is so poor, God makes clear that he has no part in this upcoming heritage, and that's why we have two genealogies in the New Testament, because we have to deal with the Jeconiah problem, okay? And so, yes, he's from the line of Solomon in one sense, but he's actually from the line of Nathan, 
and through Nathan avoids Jeconiah entirely. Um, all of that to say, all of that to say here that the prophetic significance of this promise forms the most important reality of who Jesus is. The promises that have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the ones that are being fulfilled in Jesus Christ, and the ones that will be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Just try this next time you open the New Testament. Read as long as you can until you encounter this chapter. Okay? The son of David, the everlasting king, the eternal kingdom that is to come, the one who... uh, you know, who, who, was, who was promised. It's all focused right here. Let's go ahead and move on. Chapter 8. After this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. And David took Methagamah out of the hand of the Philistines. Okay, now pause here. Why do we have military records here? For one thing, we're moving the life of David forward, and a big part of David's life is as king operating as general, okay? And so a lot of the victories he has in chapter 8 are over the traditional enemies of Israel. God is, through David, taking ground, ground that's never been taken. In fact, the borders under David and then finally under Solomon are going to, to expand to the greatest that they ever are in Israel's history in the fullness of what God had promised all the way back to Abraham, okay? Um, but a second thing to notice here is that God has basically promised that he's going to set up this new temple when the land has rest, okay? And so David devotes the rest of his life to getting Israel to a place of rest and stockpiling a wealth so that his son can build the temple, okay? So he doesn't just passively receive these promises. He invests his life in them, and one of the things that means is getting Israel back on track when it comes to the Canaanites and to their enemies traditionally. And so he attacks the Philistines, and verse 2, he defeated Moab, and he measured them with a line, making them lie down on the ground. Two lines he measured to be put to death, and one full line to be spared. In other words, he, he creates three lines of people, and two-thirds of them he puts to death, but he spares a third of them. And the Moabites became servants to David and brought tribute. Verse 3, David also defeated Hadad-Ezer, the son of Rehob, the king of Zobah, as he went to restore the power at the river Euphrates. Now, why is that significant? That is the far reaches of God's promised territory for Israel. He's pushing the envelope, okay, at the river Euphrates. In verse 4, David took from him 1,700 horsemen, and 20,000 foot soldiers, and David hamstrung all the chariot horses, but left enough for 100 chariots. Okay. And so why does he hamstring the horses? That's like stripping the, t- uh, the tank treads off of a panzer. Okay. The idea here is that they're no longer military ready. Okay. They, they can no longer maintain a military gallop. Okay. Um, the significance here is, uh, is significant on on twofold. Okay, one, he limits the possibility for this army to raise up again. And two, he doesn't take them for himself. Now, it does says he spares a hundred chariots, and we're not told why. Is he keeping some for himself? Maybe. It, does he see these people as needing some way to defend themselves in the minor from other places? Maybe. We're not told, okay? But what he doesn't do is stockpile, stockpile military power. David has learned after a long life of fighting that it's God who gives the victory. He's not into that game. 
Verse 5, and when the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, the king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 men of the Syrians. Then David put garrisons in Aram of Damascus, and the Syrians became servants to David and brought tribute. Okay, this is very far north. It's at the north regions of Israel. In fact, Damascus and Syria are both north of Israel proper today. Um, one of the things that happens here, notice it's, it leads to tribute. Here he starts to control the two major roads okay, that connect the ancient world. The way of the sea that runs along the Mediterranean and the way of the king that goes east to Babylon. Okay? And so by doing so, he, uh, he's setting up a couple of things. It's not mentioned here in the text, but most commentators believe that this tribute would also include taxes on exported goods. In other words, anything that flows through this intersection of roads now, he gets a cut of. This is, once again, about wealth building. Okay? Verse 6, the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. Verse 7, and David took the shields of gold that were carried by the servants of Hadad-Ezer and brought them to Jerusalem. That's flagged for later. For now, we can just leave it there, and it's worth pointing out that you don't make shields of gold for fighting. Okay? They're ceremonial. Gold is way too soft. It would just bend right around a sword if you hit it with it. But they are, of course, valuable. Verse 8, and from Beta to Barathai, cities of Hadadezer, King, uh, King David took very much bronze. Wealth. Verse 9, when Toi, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the whole army of Hadadezer, Toi sent his son Joram to King David to ask about his health and to bless him because he'd fought against Hadadezer and defeated him. For Hadadezer had often been at war with Toi. Okay, so what are we seeing here? We're seeing external and foreign respect for David as king. Okay. Um, continuing on here, Joram brought with him articles of silver, gold, and bronze. So what's the second thing we see here? Wealth. Okay. David's life here is setting up, setting the stage for God's promises to be fulfilled through Solomon. Uh, we'll see more on that later. These also... King David dedicated to the Lord, together with the silver and the gold that he dedicated from all the nations he subdued, from Edom, Moab, and the Ammonites, from the Philistines, Amalek, from the spoil of Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah. And David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. Then he put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all of Edom he put garrisons, and the Edomites became David's servant. And when the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. Okay, two things there. One, notice he sets up garrisons again. Okay. Once again, those are along the primary trade routes. Okay, so he's not just recording or um, controlling the north end roads, but also the southeastern roads where Edom is as well now, major highways. And so he sets up garrisons there to maintain. Now, if you want to read more about this victory over the Edomites, you can read Psalm 60. We don't have time tonight, but it refers to this battle here. And then notice again that it's repeated that the Lord gave David victory wherever he went. Okay. Verse 15, so David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. Those words there for justice and equity, those are the big ethical terms of the Old Testament. That defines society as it's supposed to be. And despite the fact when Absalom comes along, he's going to say, if you really want justice, you have to deal with me. Samuel's, uh, the book of 2 Samuel makes clear here that David was a tremendously righteous ruler, not just a righteous warrior, but a righteous ruler. And in the days of David, there was justice 
and equity. Okay, there was righteousness uh, and, uh, and, and equity to all his people. And so here we meet kind of his cabinet. Joab, the son of Zeriah, was over the army. We've already met him. And Jehoshaphat, the son of Elihud, was his recorder, okay, keeping the records. Uh, verse 17, Zadok, the son of Ahitab, and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were priests. And Syria was his secretary. And Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Cherethites and the Pelethites, and David's sons were priests. Just one note there in verse 18. The Cherethites and Pelethites are probably mercenaries. They're foreign soldiers under David's employ, and so we find who's over them. And then it mentions here that David's sons were priests. Now, when Chronicles tells us about David's son, it tells us that this priesthood role is not like we would think of it, but basically royal administration. You can see that in 1 Chronicles 18, 17. But the word here is just the basic word for priest. And so, like I said, some have suggested that there may have been some sort of significant, not Levitical priesthood. David can't just march into the Holy of Holies. He can't offer the sacrifices on his own but a significant symbolic priesthood that comes with the order of Melchizedek and he brings his sons up in it. Either way, um, both of those are intentional or uh, possible readings. Chapter nine. And David said, is there still anyone left in the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Okay. The word there for show him kindness is hesed. It's this covenant loyalty. It's this loyal love that the Bible uses in terms of covenants, including God's covenant with Israel. Why now? Okay. Because all the way back in 1 Samuel chapter 20, when Jonathan comes to David and recognizes his kingship and makes a covenant with him, he says, I will stand with you. I believe God's going to bring everything about. He says, but if I die, promise me that you will show this word here, kindness, steadfast love to my family. Okay. But the, the place where Jonathan tells him to do it is when the Lord gives you rest over your enemies. Okay. So now that takes place and David remembers the promise he made to Jonathan and he begins to ask, is there anyone left from the house of Saul? Now we already know there is, right? Um, he was five and he was dropped by his nurse and he's lame and his name is Mephibosheth. Okay. And so, verse 2, there was a servant in the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they call him to David. And the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said to him, I am your servant. Now, honestly, I imagine this is an awkward interview. Okay. Ziba is one of Saul's best servants, and all of a sudden, years later, he's just summoned to talk to David. And the first question he wants to go is, you the guy who worked for Saul? But to his credit, he just says, I'm your servant. He lays it out in verse 3. The king said, So not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. And the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He's in the house of Machir the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Okay. If you're, if you're curious, just read it far, far away. Okay. It's, it's, it's boonies. We, we don't even really know these places. We know where they are, but we've never heard them in the Bible so far. They are really of no significance. He's, remember, his nurse was running away to hide him, and so he's been in hiding all this time. Verse 6, And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth, 
And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And so he, he says, I'm going to fulfill my promises to your father, and then he gives him two practical ways. First, everything that belonged to Saul property-wise, all the land that belonged to him, it's yours now. And he says, also, you now eat at my table. You eat from my store. You eat in my presence for the rest of your days. Verse 8, he paid homage, this is Mephibosheth, and said, what is your servant that, I should show, that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I. And so he speaks just very humbly here. Verse nine, the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, all that belong to Saul and all to his house I've given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and bring him the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. Now notice here two things. One, this is also a benefit to, to Ziba and all his family. Because they're not just going to work this land and pass it all on. They're going to live off the land and pay tribute to Mephibosheth. But also notice that significantly, this property means nothing to a man who's lame in both feet. And so David makes sure that there are people who are going to be accountable to working the land. This is striking because effectively, the last living threat to David's throne, a grandson of Saul, he is... Uh, making wealthy, okay? Right now, Mephibosheth is not a threat. And if David's concern was the danger of Mephibosheth, then he could just put him to death. But he invests in him because of his promise to Jonathan. He shows him tremendous kindness. Uh, and so he makes sure that his wealth is going to rebuild, that he has a place. Um, and so then we're told that Ziba has 15 sons and 20 servants, verse 11. Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. He treats him like family. He brings him right to his table. Verse 12, Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, and he ate always at the king's table. And then it adds here, now he was lame in both feet. Why? Because this is a significant act of grace. A significant act of mercy. Not something that Mephibosheth can take credit for. He's just, he was just lamed as a child. And here he's eating at the table of a king while his wealth is being rebuilt. Now, I want to press into chapter 10. And the reason is because it's clear that the story of Mephibosheth is juxtaposed with the story that comes next. What do we learn about David with Mephibosheth? That as we've seen over and over again, he's a man of character and a man of mercy and of grace. But here's the thing we have to remember about character, mercy, and grace. It doesn't always work. Okay? It's different than charm. David isn't just how to win friends and influence people. And we need to remember that we can do the right thing and be the right person and love people very well and still experience rejection and scorn and hatred and animosity. Just read the Gospels, for goodness sakes. Right? Jesus loves all perfectly, and yet his mistreatment is consistent. And so here, in contrast to Mephibosheth and his response, look at chapter 10, verse 1. After this, the king of the Ammonites died, and Hanan, his son, reigned in his place, 
And David, David said, I will deal loyally with Hanan, the son of Naash, as his father dealt loyally with me. Now, we don't know this, the history here, but at some point in David's life, he had an agreement, he had a covenant with this king. Now the king has died, and he goes, I'm going to go to the son, and I'm going to express again, reestablish this relationship. Um, in re- because his father was good to me, I will be good to his son. Okay? Just like Jonathan and Mephibosheth. So David sent by his servants to console him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the Ammonites. But the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanan, their lord, Do you think because David has sent comforters to you that he is honoring your father? Has not David sent his servants to you to search the city and to spy it out and to overthrow it? Okay, and so the other lesser rulers under this brand new king, they come and they go, come on, man. You think that this is good intentions? Clearly it's a plot. What do you think they're doing as they walk through our palace? They're scouting the exits for a later raid, right? And Hanun listens, verse 4, Hanun took David's servants and shaved off half their beard of each and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips and sent them away. Okay, in other words, he makes them look ridiculous, okay, and uh, recognize the significance here, okay, so they go home with half a beard. I know some of you have pictures, you men have pictures on your phone that look like that because you were shaving and were curious. I know those things exist. Um, And then second, it says that they cut off their clothes at the waist. In other words, they go home exposed from the the waist down, okay? An incredibly shameful thing. And remember here, this is a long journey. They're in foreign territory. They walk out the city like this. They walk all the way to the border of Israel like this. They cross the River Jordan like this, okay? His response is intentionally to shame David's servants, okay? Now, we may not get what's so shameful about this. This is embarrassing. We've all probably had dreams like this before. Um, But in these days, this is so shameful. I want you to notice David's response, okay? And so he does this. He sends them away. Verse 5, when it was told to David, he sent to meet them, and the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, remain at Jericho until your beards have grown, and then return, okay? He doesn't make them bear the shame, even of being unbearded. And traveling through Israel, he just says, hide out in Jericho and wait until your beards are back, okay? That, I think, gives us a better understanding of the shame that's involved in here, the public scrutiny that would come under this. But, verse 6, when the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to David, now let's be clear here, that was the job, that was the point, right? They sought to offend David. They're not surprised that David is offended, but they also still want to be the initiator here. And so what do they do? The Ammonites sent and hired the Syrians of Beth Rehob, the Syrians of Zoab, 20,000 foot shoulders, soldiers of the king of Makkah, with 1,000 men, and the men of Tob, 12,000 men. So they start hiring soldiers from other nations, building up their military for what they know is coming. But remember, this is a fight that they picked. Okay, verse 7, when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the host of the mighty men, and the Ammonites came out and drew up in battle array at the entrance of the gate, and the Syrians of Zoab and Rehob and the men of Tob and Makkah were by themselves in the open country. Okay, it's a little bit hard to get the picture here, but basically this is what it's saying. 
it's saying all of the original soldiers, the Ammonites, are set up in one place and all of the mercenaries are set up in another place. And so as Israel walks into this, they now have two fronts instead of one on the battle. It's a strategic, intentional, uh, intentional thing so that they can attack from both sides. Verse 9, when Joab saw the battle was set against him both in front and in the rear, he chose some of the best men of Israel and arrayed them against the Syrians. Okay. The rest of his men he put in charge of Abishai's brother, and he arrayed them against the Ammonites. Okay? So he picks, he goes, which battle's going to be raging hotter? And he himself takes the strongest against that one, and then he sends his younger brother with the rest of the soldiers towards the other one. So they split their army in half. Okay? This is a risky move. Verse 11, he explains, he said, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I'll come and help you. And so he says, keep an eye out. If we're losing the fight, retreat and reinforce our armies. Verse 12, be of good courage and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. So Joab and the people were with him, drew near to battle against the Syrians and they fled before him. Now I want you to notice here, uh, this is one of the few places where we actually see significant faith on Job's behalf, or Joab's behalf. Remember, he's kind of a rough around the edges guy. David says, I'm gentle, but Joab and his brothers, they're rough, right? But here, he encourages them, and he says, be of courage, not because I'm here, not because you're strong. He says, but this is the, God, this is the battle of the Lord. These are the cities that belong to God, and he's going to do whatever he wants, okay? And they have victory, verse 14, when the Ammonites saw that the Syrians fled, they likewise fled before Abishai and entered the city, then Joab returned from fighting against the Ammonites and came to Jerusalem. So notice the second thing that happens here. They, they rout the mercenaries. They're on the road. They're running. And when the Ammonites see that, they start to fear for their own lives. And so they lock themselves in this big fortress city. And what does Joab do? He goes home. It's one of the things that I think is significant throughout the life of David militaristically is his restraint. Okay. Remember that this is, not just, um, this is not just a threat that they're dealing with. It's also an offensive, diplomatic, slap-in-the-face reality. I can't imagine that Joab, apart from the advice of David, would let this go. That doesn't sound like Joab. So this sounds more like David. But either way, that's enough. The uprising is put to rest. They leave all the men. But that's not where the story ends. Verse 15 when the Syrians saw they'd been defeated by Israel, they gathered themselves together, and Hadad-Ezer sent and brought out the Syrians who were beyond the Euphrates. Okay, So they start to gather forces. They came to Halam with Shokbah, the commander of the army of Hadad-Ezer, at their head. And when it was told to David, he gathered all Israel together and crossed the Jordan and came to Halam. The Syrians arrayed themselves against David and fought with him. So now, now David gets involved. The full army is gathered and they cross the river, and they fight. Verse 18, the Syrians fled before Israel, and David killed of the Syrians the men of 700 chariots and 40,000 horsemen, and wounded Shobach, the commander of their army, so that he died there. And when all the kings who were servants of Hadad-Ezer saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and became subject to them. So the Syrians were afraid to save the Ammonites anymore. 
Okay, so remember the story here. The Ammonites caused the offense. They hire the Syrians. The Syrians get wiped out. The Ammonites back off. The Syrians are now riled up, so they get more partners, and David knocks them out again. And so they come to peace terms with David. This is not a land grab. He's not interested in, uh, in revenge. He's not interested in expansion territorially. Okay, they're outside of the land of Israel. What he's interested in is peace. Why? Because it's when the land has rest that the temple will be built. Okay? This is David's agenda. And so he does it dip diplomatically. He does it mercifully. He does it when strength is necessary. Uh, he does it continuously throughout his life. Okay? Now sometimes I wish the story of David ended there, but it does not. Okay? And so we'll have to pick up. But really here, this is the pinnacle. All the promises given to David, David functioning as a king is supposed to be, bringing about everything that God had promised to Israel and doing it in faith and in incredible humility before the Lord. But, but David, like all of us, is human. And so David, like all of us, needs a savior. And that will become very clear next week. Let me make sure that we actually finish chapter 10 because that's where the page ends. And sometimes I do that. Good. Okay. Let's pray. Father, it's easy to look at David as truly a man after your own heart, as an example of humility, of kindness, of courage, of restraint, of servanthood, of all these things. But what's even greater, Lord, are the promises that you gave to David. Not because of who he was, but because of who you are. Because of the plan that predates the life of David by thousands of years where you said, I am going to set things right. And mercifully, and graciously, you raised up David from being just a shepherd and made him king and gave him an everlasting heritage by sending your own son and making him a descendant of David and pressing him through the terrible suffering of the cross to redeem your people, to die, be buried, and resurrected so that he would have the name that is above the name of David and every other name on earth and in heaven and under the earth, the only name which we will all bow, the only one which we will all confess is Lord Jesus Christ. So we thank you, Lord, and I pray like David, we would put the full weight leaning on your promises and not our performance or our plans. And that we would, we would live leaning into the promises you've made us in Jesus Christ. And pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Have a good night.